0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Joshua chapter 3 as we continue our mini-series we're calling Joshua Generation. title of my message for you today is, It's Time to Cross Over. It's Time to Cross Over. And that'll make more sense as we get into the story. But to begin, what we're looking at today represents a significant milestone in the history of God's people. The event we're going to read about was hundreds of years in the making. Literally. I mean, after 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt, and then another 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness the Israelites stood poised and getting ready to take their first steps into the land of promise. Now, this had always been God's plan from the very beginning, beginning, to bring them into a land that flowed with milk and honey. However, because of their disobedience and rebellion, they were forced to take an extended detour in the wilderness. And a trip that should have only taken them 11 days ended up taking them 40 days. Years. How many of you know that the wilderness is always part of God's plan for your life? But how much time you spend in the wilderness? Well, that in part is up to you. (laughs) And they ended up extending their time there through their disobedience. But now the time had finally come for them to go in and take possession of the land that God had promised to give to their ancestor, Abraham. But before they could do that. They first had to figure out how they were going to deal with this obstacle that stood in their way, this thing called the Jordan River. And we read about it beginning in verse 1 of Joshua 3. It says, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out for, from Shatim, and they went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, Saying, when you see the ark of the covenant and of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. All right, so here is the, the scene. This, these verses set the stage. We have the Israelites camped out there along the eastern banks of the Jordan River. Unfortunately for them, their promise lied on the western side of the Jordan. In other words, they're on the wrong side of the river. Now normally, this wouldn't have been too big of a problem, for the Jordan River isn't that wide, and there are several points at which they could have easily made the crossing. However, As luck would have it, God led them to the Jordan River during the springtime when the snows from Mount Hermon had melted into the Jordan River and it overflowed its banks. And during this season, in those days, the Jordan River in certain places would be as wide as a mile in different areas. So it was impassable. If the Lord had brought them up from the south, they could have easily avoided having to cross the river altogether. But he hadn't. If he'd brought them up in a different season, at a different time, in a different month, they could have crossed. But he hadn't. He'd brought them up when it was overflowing its banks, And so they were stuck. Imagine how frustrating it must have been for these Jews to, to be stuck on the wrong side of their promise. It was so close. They could see it. They could taste it. They could almost reach it, but they couldn't quite get to it. And some of us knows what that feels like. You see, there are all these parallels between the journey that the Israelites made from Egypt to the promised land and the journey that we take as Christians. Let me just highlight a few of them. In many ways, the story of God's people begins there in Egypt with their dramatic rescue from bondage and slavery. And, and it, was, it happened in dramatic fashion as they took the shed blood of a sacrificial lamb and applied it to the doorposts of their home. And this caused the angel of death to pass over. And in response to that, they were set free. Well, that mirrors the experience of the Christian. Our journey of faith begins when we take the, the blood of Jesus, whom the scriptures describe as the Lamb of God, who is slain from the foundations of the world, and we apply his blood to our hearts and we're set free from sin and hell and death. From there, the Israelites passed through the parted waters of the Red Sea. And this mirrors the experience of the believer when we pass through the waters of baptism, identifying with Jesus in his death, burial and resurrection. Then they make their way through the wilderness and God speaks to them a promise. I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Even so, as Christians, Jesus hasn't promised us a geographical place or a land, but he has promised us a life. A life marked by peace and joy and love. You see, for the Christian, the promised land is a symbol or a picture of the spirit-filled life. It's a mark that is characterized by abundance and flourishing and victory. Jesus described it like this in John 10:10. He said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full life to the max. That's what God sent his only son, Jesus, to the earth to purchase for you on Calvary's cross. Yet sadly... Just like those Israelites who found themselves camped on the wrong side of the river, there are many Christians who never enter into and experience the life that God designed for them. They remain stuck, as it were, in a wilderness. They're forgiven, but not free. They're saved, but their life is filled with struggle. They're, 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 they're going to heaven when they die, but their life is filled with defeat here on earth. They're delivered, but dry. And in all these ways, oftentimes we feel just like those Israelites. It's like you can see the life you were destined for, but you can't quite reach it. And that's a really frustrating place to be. For anyone in here who ever, who's ever felt like that, I believe God gives us some keys to crossing over in our text today, and I wanna outline them with you. The first one is this. If you want to cross over, you need to get your eyes on the Lord. That's the first fill in the blank in our outline if you wanna go ahead and take out your pen and jot that down. You need to get your eyes on the Lord. You see, for three days, any significance to the number three? For three days, they're there by the Jordan River and their eyes are staring at the impossibility of the situation before them. There's too much water moving. I mean, perhaps some of them reasoned the strongest of us could possibly swim across. But, but there were two million of them. What about the elderly, the infirmed, and, and all the kids? I mean, it appeared as though their newly appointed leader, Joshua, had led them right into a dead end. And we have to imagine that Joshua was wrestling with this same conundrum. Lord, why did you bring us here? And yet God did have a plan. He hadn't brought them to a dead end. He was about to turn this dead end into a doorway. But before God could unravel or reveal his plan, he first had to get the people's eyes off of the problem. And so Joshua sends the, the, the officers throughout the camp and he instructs the people to take their eyes and to focus them on the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, this sacred object that housed, you know, the, the jar of manna and the Ten Commandments and, and Aaron's rod that budded. It was a, a box about two feet wide by, by two feet tall and, and three feet long. And, and it was a picture of God's presence, And Joshua says through his officers, get your eyes off of the river and focus them on the ark because it symbolized the presence of the Lord. And then notice, too, how they were told to leave a distance of about 3,000 feet or 2,000 cubits. That's the equivalent between them and the ark. In other words, he says, let the ark go out before you. Let it lead you. Now, there were practical reasons for this. I mean, if everybody crowded around it, only those in the front row would see where God was moving. And so in order to create space for everyone to be able to see, he says, let the ark get out ahead of you and then follow it. Now, this is the model for how God always wants to lead us. He goes before us. This is a promise that he had already spoken over the Israelites. We find it in Deuteronomy 31 verse eight. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. The Lord himself goes before you. And will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. All kinds of wonderful promises in that verse. But you see, I've underlined this this thought that's buried in there that says we don't need to be afraid or discouraged because the same God who goes with us has already gone before us. And I find that tremendously comforting to know He's about three quarters of a mile ahead of you down the road. He's preparing you for the next stage of life that you're getting to walk ready to walk into. You might think of it like this. He's he's three quarters of an hour ahead of you. Three quarters of a month ahead of you. Three quarters of a year ahead of you. And what all of that means is you can be sure that he will never, never bring you into a situation that he hasn't already tailor made and handcrafted for your flourishing. He's prepared you for it and he's prepared it for you. All you have to do is fix your eyes on him. Isn't that what we read in Hebrews 12 two? This is what we do. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, for he has gone before us. And when he moves, we follow. Now, it's it was particularly important for the people of God to keep their eyes focused on the Lord and where he was leading them in this season, because as verse four points out, they'd never been this way before. See, as they crisscrossed the Sinai Peninsula during those 40 years, on occasion, they would find themselves camped at a place they had previously been. But from this moment forward, every step that they took led them into uncharted territory. The same thing could be said about the future that God is getting ready to bring you into. You've never been this way before. Each new day leads us into uncharted territory. I mean, none of us knows what tomorrow holds or what it will bring. Why? Because we've never been there. Now, our tendency in situations where we are unfamiliar or we find ourselves in places where we're not sure what God's doing or where he's leading, our inclination is to to stay put. And we're often reluctant to step out or move until we feel like we have all the answers. Anybody else like that? And we overanalyze situations and we end up paralyzing ourselves through fear and uncertainty. And we are waiting for God to reveal the whole plan. But but what this story does is it, it reveals that oftentimes the way God leads us is step by step. He does so in, in stages, one step at a time. And so he gives us just enough revelation to step out in faith. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. It's just a candlelight, just enough for you to take the next step. This is something that we see illustrated throughout the Bible. In particular, we see it in the life of Abraham. Let's go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 together. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. And I think this verse helps explain why all men everywhere have trouble with directions. We don't really know where we're going, but we just keep driving. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> but notice how when God calls Abraham, he doesn't provide him with all the details. In Genesis 12, when he says, just go to a land that I will show you. Okay, where is the land? Well, I'll show you, just go. And so without a full understanding or a complete picture, Abraham sets out, and that's what faith does. That's how faith works, and it's what God wants from us. Because we face seasons, just like the Israelites, which, where we find ourselves in places where we've never been before. Some of you, you're getting ready to be parents for the first time. I mean, we just you know prayed for, a, for, for some new parents before the service. <laughs> You do not know what you're getting yourself into. You have no idea. You've never been this way before. And all the parents said, amen. <laughs> you know, even as I I've, 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 have you know, four kids at this point, and there's times when I look, want to look at my kids and say, look, guys, this is my first time doing this. I'm sorry if I'm not getting it right. I mean, I've never been this way before. Some of you are getting ready to start a new job. You've never been this way before. You're getting ready to move to a new city. You've never been this way before. You're you're getting married. You've never been this way before. We're all getting ready to turn the page on the calendar and enter a new year. We've never been this way before. You see, there's all kinds of things you don't know and can't know because you're facing them for the first time. So what should you do when you find yourself in unfamiliar territory? Well, don't let that keep you from stepping out in faith. What you do is you put your eyes on the Lord. You trust the God who has gone before him before you, and you step out in faith and let him lead you. Get your eyes on the Lord. That's point number one. Secondly, if you want to cross over, you've got to get your heart right before the Lord. That's the second point. And we see this in verse five, where Joshua tells the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. I love this verse. And there's a powerful principle embedded in the words of Joshua here. What he's basically saying is, if you want to see amazing things happen tomorrow, if you want to see God move through you in the miraculous tomorrow, then it starts with consecrating yourself unto him today. Now, consecration is kind of one of those old dusty theological words so so let's you know let's pick it up and let's define it for a minute what does it mean to consecrate yourself to god a synonym would be the word sanctify and it quite literally means to set yourself apart for god's use for instance in the tabernacle and later on in the temple there were all of these objects and utensils and instruments that were consecrated. That is, they were set apart for holy purposes. They weren't to be used in ordinary, everyday kind of affairs. These instruments were for God's use. And what those priests would do with those objects, we as Christians are called to do with our lives. We're to say, Lord, these are your hands. Lord, these are your feet. God, this job is your platform that you've given to me. These are your blessings and I'm living with an open hand. Use my mouth, use my life, Lord, to, to bless your people and to fulfill your will. Now, I used to think of consecration strictly in terms of you know, all the stuff you're not supposed to be involved with. And I equated holiness with avoiding bad stuff. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? And certainly there's a part of holiness that requires us to abstain from certain behaviors or or to to turn away from from evil habits and, and things like that. That's part of it. But it's only half of it. The other half of consecration is all about yielding and surrendering your heart to the Lord and saying yes to the things of God. It's about fully dedicating yourself to Him and His plans. And this is the path to seeing amazing things happen. You see, the Israelites had no idea what that amazing thing was that God was getting ready to do. And Joshua doesn't tell tell them. It's, It's still vague and ambiguous. I don't think Joshua gets into specifics because he doesn't even know what it is. He just knows that it's gonna be amazing. And what was true of them is true for all of you. God has glorious things planned for your future. I love the verse in Daniel 11:32 that says, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. What are great exploits? Well, I would put great exploits in the same category as amazing things. It's just cool stuff. And who doesn't want to be a part of cool stuff? I mean, in Daniel's life, The great exploits look like the Lord shutting the mouths of lions. For the Israelites, it looked like them crossing on dry ground through a river. What might it be for you or me? We'll never know, and we'll never get to experience those amazing things if we don't first consecrate ourselves to the Lord. You see, God is wanting to do rad things, amazing things in our day, but he's looking for consecrated vessels to flow through. And the thing to note is there is a direct correlation to be made between the purity that you walk in and the power that you experience. Purity equates to power. When we allow mixture into our lives, when we allow compromise to creep in, it hinders the flow of God through us, much in the same way that A clogged artery in your heart hinders the flow of blood to the rest of your body. You see, if you would start consecrating yourself to God today, you'd be amazed by the things he would do through you tomorrow. Somebody say amen. 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 So we get our eyes on the Lord. We give our hearts to the Lord. And then in verse six, Joshua goes on to say to the priest, now take up the ark of the covenant and pass ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today, I'm going to begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel so that they might know that I'm with you, just as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. So Joshua said to the Israelites, come here. Listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, all the other Ites, the Cellulites, the Bugbites, the Flashlights. He says, See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Oh, the stage is being set. But there's a couple of interesting things going on here. Notice with me how God doesn't speak to Joshua until after Joshua tells the priests to pick up the ark and to start moving. Isn't that interesting? So when Joshua takes a step of faith, God gives him further revelation. Sometimes I think we're waiting for the Lord to show up and and we're waiting for the Lord to do something. And meanwhile, God is in heaven and he's waiting for us to take the first step. And I say that based on what we see here. As soon as Joshua takes the first step, God gives him the next step. Ooh, there's truth to that. Some of you haven't heard from the Lord in a long time, and it's because you still haven't done the last thing that he told you to do. And if you would go and do the last thing that he said, you would find him giving you revelation for the next thing. God's not gonna give you further detail until you're obedient to the previous revelation. Does that make sense? And so Joshua begins to move in faith towards the river, and then the Lord says, okay, have the priest stand in the water. And that's all he says. But when you jump down to the way that Joshua relays this information to the people, he adds to it. He, he riffs a little bit. And he says, when the priests step foot in the river, God's going to cut off the flow of water. Now, God doesn't say that specifically. So what's going on here? Well, here's what I think is happening. As Joshua begins to move forward in faith, What had formerly been obscured and muddy suddenly becomes crystal clear. God's plan is beginning to take form and take shape. Whereas before he might have been wrestling with thoughts of, God, did you lead us here to abandon us? And now he's starting to see this problem that's before them is about to be turned into a pathway for greater glory in the name of the Lord. God was getting ready to display his power. He hadn't forsaken them or abandoned them. He had a plan and his plan unfolds in these verses we just read. A couple of things stand out. God, first of all, he led his people to this dead end, if you want to call it that, because he knew that this new generation needed their own power encounter with him. Think about it. These are the descendants of that generation of Israelites who had been delivered from Egypt. And you have to know they were raised on the stories of their parents and they had heard them time in. time time out and time again how God had shown up and through these series of 10 plagues and oh, you should have seen the frogs and oh man, but I think the, the 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 locusts might have been worse and then there was a night of complete darkness but God protected us and then he caused the angel of death to pass over and he led us through the Red Sea and they had their songs and they had their stories but this generation hadn't been there for that. This is a new generation and God knows they need their own stories of God's faithfulness. You see, you can't live on secondhand faith and praise God for what he did in previous generations. But we need as a fresh generation to begin to tell our own stories. Somebody say amen. amen. And so God is beginning to craft and write a new story full of new miracles for this new generation. And what he did with them, he wants to do with us. God has a desire. He hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and would to God, we would desire to see him work in that way. I love the words of Habakkuk 3.2. Let's go ahead and read these together out loud. Lord, I have heard the news about you. I'm amazed at what you've done. Lord, do great things once again in our time. Make those things happen again in our own days, even when you are angry. Remember to be kind. This needs to become our prayer. Lord, I've heard the stories. I'm amazed by the things you've done in the past. Lord, do it again in our day. Lord, bring another revival. I love reading about revivals. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love to study revivals and the great outpouring of God's spirit upon different generations. I was so inspired by the Jesus revelation. Jesus revolution movie that came out recently that highlighted the Jesus people movement, but it stirs my heart up to say, God, do it again. God, do it with me. God, why not here? Why not now? Why not us? Amen. And so this needs to become our prayer and he wants to do it again, but when he does it again, it's going to look a little different, right? This, this story doesn't read exactly like the story of the parting of the Red Sea. There are many similarities, but there are some notable differences too. Namely, in that first instance, God just has Moses stretch out his staff over the waters and they part. Here, he requires a greater measure of faith. Did you notice that? He says, I want the priest to stand in the water. Why does he require more from this generation? Simply because they had encountered more, they'd lived with more, they'd experienced more. And so God always takes us into greater depths. And as he leads us into deeper places, he requires from us greater degrees of faith because he's shown us more of his faithfulness. So that's what the Lord was doing. But he was also doing other things. He wanted to use this miracle to establish Joshua as the leader of the Israel, Israel, Israelites. There you go. That works. He wanted to firmly establish him. Now. Joshua had already been, um, you know, positioned, appointed as the leader by Moses. He'd been confirmed by the Lord. But there were still some doubters in the crowd. And so the Lord says, today, today I'm going to exalt you in the eyes of all of the people. Again, what's beautiful, though, is as you look at the way Joshua translates this and relays this information to the people, he doesn't say, hey, guys, God's about to do something amazing through me. Check me out. But instead, what does he say? He says, God is going to be magnified. God is going to be glorified. He shows his humility, which was was part of what made him such a great leader. He was always redirecting people's gaze to the Lord. And then thirdly, God wanted to use this miracle to build the confidence of his people. And Joshua started to see that. Hey, once God does this, you're going to have the confidence you need to go into the promised land and take possession of it. We have to remember there were all kinds of enemies over here, and they're listed for us in these verses, all the ites, and they were scary. But Joshua says, once we pass through on dry ground, you're going to know that the God who's gone before us is the God who fights our battles for us, and he'll take out those enemies. So if you want to cross over, it begins with getting your eyes off of the problem and putting them on the Lord. And then the second step is you've got to get your heart right. You've got to give your heart to the Lord. But there's one more step that I want you to see. And it's this. If you want to cross over, there comes a point at which you've got to get your feet wet. And we see that in verses 14 through 17. Let's finish up. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now, the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the city or in the vicinity of Zarathon, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho and the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and notice they stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. I want you to notice something. When did the miracle occur? It happened as soon as their feet touched the water's edge. And not a moment before. God waits until they dip their toes in the Jordan. And the moment they do that, the waters recede. Why? He waited for them to demonstrate their faith. Before he sent the miracle. You know, there are a lot of ways that you can please God. But none apart from faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. Hebrews 11.6. For whatever reason... As God thinks about what he has planned for eternity, he thinks it's important for his kids in this season, this stage of his ultimate plans for us to grow this thing called faith. And so he sends us trials. He sends us tests so that we can come through those with a greater testimony. You see, faith is like a muscle. It needs to be exercised. And that impossible situation that you're confronting right now has been allowed by God to build your faith. Now, the Bible talks about various kinds of faith, many different kinds of faith. I want to to take just a minute to highlight three different kinds of faith. First of all, one kind of faith the Bible talks about is dead faith. This is not the kind of faith God is trying to grow in you, okay? James talks about it in James 2, 17, when he says, faith without works is dead. In other words, if your faith is nothing more than a dry adherence to some theological position, but it never impacts the way you live, It never brings any fruit into your life. Remember the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, goodness, gentleness. If there's no fruit and it never finds its way into your feet, then the Bible would say your faith is dead. We need to remember that faith means far more than believing the right things. It's, It's not a noun. It's not sedentary. It's not static. Faith is always on the move. Why? Because God is always on the move. And so faith is a verb. It's an action word. That's dead faith. Let's talk about another kind of faith we see in the Bible, and that is demonic faith. Again, we're not trying to build demonic faith here today. James talks about this as well in James 2.19, when he says, you believe in God, and you say that there's one God, well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. James is once again telling us it's not enough to, to have good theology, If you think about it, the demons have really good theology. They know who Jesus is. They know that he's God's son, that he left heaven, that he came to this earth, that he exercised his authority, that he died on a cross, and that he rose from the dead. But demons aren't going to heaven. So what then is the difference between demonic faith and the kind of faith we're called on to exercise? Well, they while they have this right theology, they haven't surrendered personally their hearts to the Lord. And that leads us to this third kind of faith, the kind we see illustrated here. I want to call it dynamic faith. And it's dynamic because it is active. It's evidenced through a lifestyle. This kind of faith reaches beyond mere belief or intellectual assent. And it reaches into this sphere called active trust. And this is what God is looking for from all of us. You see, dynamic faith is what led Noah to build the ark when it had never rained. Dynamic faith is what led Abraham to leave his home and uproot his family to go to a land that he didn't even know where he was going. Dynamic faith is what led Peter and Andrew to lay down their fishing nets to embark on this incredible adventure in faith following Jesus so that they might become fishers of men. And dynamic faith is what led these priests to step into the waters of the Jordan before they had parted and get their feet wet. Great story that I think highlights or illustrates what the difference between these kinds of faiths that I've been describing here. It's about this guy, Charles Blondin, who back in the late 1800s was the most well-known tightrope walker in the world. And so on this occasion, he decided he was going to become the first man to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And so there, suspended some 270 feet above the raging waters of the river that plummeted beneath him without a harness, without a safety net, he climbed up on this top rope that stretched from America to Canada. And with tens of thousands of people watching in 1859, Charles Blondin made his way across that tightrope. And people were ecstatic. Then he came back. And they cheered all the more. Then he got a wheelbarrow and pushed a wheelbarrow across. This really caused the crowd to go into a frenzy. He pushed it back. Then he put a bunch of bricks in there. And he did it again. And he came back. And they were hooting. And they were hollering. And he says, who, do you, who, thinks, who here thinks that I could put a man in this wheelbarrow and, and push him across the tightrope? And they all cheered and went wild. And he said, how about you? And at that, the guy he was pointing to was like, no, 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 no. And he demurred. He had been cheering a moment before, but now he was chafing. He was like, there's no way I'm getting in that wheelbarrow. You see, he believed intellectually on one level, but he wasn't willing to put his feet to his faith. Does that make sense? Now, what what if there was like a little kid there that day, raised his hand, said, I'll hop in. He hops in the wheelbarrow. Blondin pushes him across and then brings him back. The crowd goes wild. We won't talk about Child Protective Services, but then somebody asks him, (laughs) what were you thinking? Why were you willing to jump in this wheelbarrow? And the kid answers, it's easy. He's my dad. And so the conditions were present in his heart that prepared him to trust in uncertain times and herein we get a beautiful picture of what biblical dynamic faith looks like biblical faith steps into the unknown because there is a known God that is leading us forward it trusts with certainty in the midst of uncertain times, because it knows the heart of the one who's leading him. It's it's willing to get into the wheelbarrow. It's willing to get its feet wet. Now, here's one last thought that I want to leave you with. The priests had wet feet. Did they take their shoes off? I don't know. It says when they put their feet in. But as soon as they put their feet in, their feet are wet. But notice everybody else passes on dry ground. That point is mentioned twice in verse 17. They're now standing on dry ground. There's no mud. This is a genuine miracle. Why? Because the Lord had caused the waters to pile up in a great heap some 20 miles away in a small town called Adam. Now, here's what's interesting about that. What that means is in order for the waters to subside at the exact moment that the priests touch the edge of the Jordan, in order for the timing to line up just like that, it meant that God had to have been working long in advance of the priests arrival at the edge of the water. In other words, while the miracle happened downstream, it was made possible by the work that God had already started upstream. Can I finish by preaching this to you for just a moment? 20 miles upstream, out of sight. no You can't see 20 miles upstream, what is happening. But God was already working. And I say that to encourage some of you in here today, because we live in a downstream world existence. But God has some upstream solutions for your downstream situations. Does that make sense? He's already working. He's already plotting. He's already planning. So while you sit and stare at this impossible situation that seems to be inhibiting your progress and keeping you from entering the life that God designed for you. God says, I've already provided a way for you to cross over. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ. And you look to him. You fix your eyes on him. You get your heart right with him and you follow him and he will lead you through it because the God who brought you to it will bring you through it. He has a plan. He's provided a way. Praise the Lord. Now, you may or may not see what he's doing because he's ahead of you. He's gone before you. He's working in advance of your arrival.